Hi. For this podcast, I have someone really special with me, Professor Joseph Gonzalez, Head of Academic Studies and MFA Dance at the Hong Kong Academy of Performing Arts. I'm very happy to 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 have him here because I've heard um, a lot of things about him as well as his contributions not only to the uh, Malaysian dancing but um, in Southeast Asia as well. Hi, good morning. Good uh, morning. Good morning, sir. How are you today? <laughs> Fine. I'm good. Just call me Joseph. So, Joseph. Yeah. So I believe there's other hats that you're uh, you're wearing other mm. than this, um, you know, being an academician in Hong Kong. Right. Is there any other things oh. you'd like to share with us? I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I think it is quite typical of most people who are very involved in the arts because our communities are small, and therefore you end up automatically wearing many many hats because of the different needs of the kind of the work that you do you see so um currently if you if i'm looking at it quite uh, at the moment and in the moment yes i work uh, and my bread and butter work is in hong kong and that's another long story of how i got there and it's quite incredible that i have this opportunity uh and uh, to maybe be able to develop something in hong kong especially for their postgraduate studies other than that uh since well my, uh, i don't even know where to begin as i said <laughs> i know my my life started as a as a performer primarily and solely i would say uh in my 20s uh, i was only interested in performing and that was how i made my living and fortunately at that age i was able to do it you know working in across genres from contemporary dance to ballet to folk dance and so on and then after that i went off to the uk and then uh did musical theater and then came back and after coming back is when sort of i think the next phase of important phase of my life began which is when the ministry of culture uh, decided that they were going to open a academy sinik bangsaan at that time so it was 1993 94 in that period of time when i literally bumped into dr anes because i was having a moment of reflection and nostalgia <laughs> i went back to my old university where i studied math but i danced i bumped into him and he said lo and behold joseph i'm looking for you and i'm like what do you mean he said yes i've been looking for you because we are having this uh, academy senikabangsaan and we need people who have trained in professional universities and schools to come and be part of the formative team and the pioneering team and it was just providence you know if you believe in the powers that be if you believe in karma whatever you believe in and that was that moment you know and i said absolutely so i he he had gathered about five artists ida redza from penang who had just come back from america lena ang as well sohami magi who had come back from indonesia myself from london and and dr anis and so we sat and talked at length about what the syllabus sh- should be could be what it would look like and so on and that began my next phase in life which was developing uh, ask as part of the pioneering group of lectures as a part-time lecturer and then through some strange turn of events in 1998 dr anis left and they offered me the job and not only at that time we were all part time and then they said okay we need you to be full time and so i was one of four or five people who are from the industry 
that they employed as, a, as full-time arts administrators and managers and educators. So it was very exciting to be a part of this group again, you know, and then uh, began a, a whole new exploration of education. And the question, the main question I was asking is, what do I want from a national academy? What should a national academy symbolize? And so I, I developed a, the curriculum slowly. It took about eight years to do so. So the incorporation of Chinese dance, the incorporation of Indian dance, the fine-tuning and improving of the Malay dance syllabus to include um, forms that were lost for many years, such as Terinai, Tariinai, and the Jogit Gamelan repertoire, which continued for another 10 years or so until we got, I think now, about 12 of the Jogit Gamelan dancers, which we didn't have at that time. So it was a very intense period of time, very tiring because you have to locate the artists, bring them to ASK. And then, of course, we became Aswara, then we started a degree program. So it's all quite com complicated, this network and madness of things that were going on. And then addressing other issues, <clears throat> because at that time when I started, we didn't have any non-Malay students. All our students were Malay at Aswara. So I said, you know, this is really not good. So we need to break down walls. We need to break down prejudices. We need to break down preconceived ideas. So the Chinese and the Indians thought it was a Malay school. The Malays thought it was too modern a school. The Indians didn't even want to dance full time anyway. The Sabahans and the Sarawakins were generally too poor to come to the school. So there were so many issues that you had to deal with. So, you know, the incorporation of the syllabus was critical because then with that syllabus and that curriculum, we created the performances. And I realized that without performances, without a public face, people are going to, and people still, I mean, we have, we have more public face than anyone else, I think, you know, in terms of the, the rate at which we did performances, you know. So I had a performance for young choreographers, uh, I called it the Lombang Baru, the new wave of young artists. I had a choreo uh, performance for the lecturers. We called it Jamu. So you come and Jamu your salera with all our different uh, approaches to contemporary dance and dance. Uh, and then I had something called Tapestry, which was a traditional dance showcase. And so these were became annual events. Um, and in between that, we also had the International Dance Festival, so can you imagine the rate at which an academic institution was actually one of the largest producers of dance for 15, 20 years? And that, that, that involves a lot of commitment and involves uh, answering questions of the environment of dance. And I think that's how I've always worked. I've looked at the environment, I've looked at the ecosystem, I've looked at the profile, the demographics, I've asked myself questions. What is missing? What do we lack? What do we need to do? And the responses are always through dance. So you create the performances. And interestingly, the first few groups of students we had were a bit older. They were from the Istana Budaya, and they had danced for 10, 15 years, and they wanted certification so that they could get their, um, their, you know, their raise in salary and their promotions. But later, the dancers became younger and they were school leavers, you know. So we actively engaged with schools. We went to uh, 
all corners of Malaysia to perform and show them that there was dance happening and you could be a dancer if you wanted to be and so on. And then we started getting dancers who were physically really, you know, ready. And then, uh, of course, I thought, you know, what do we do with these dancers who are good, right? So they've danced with all the top choreographers in Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia. So then I started sending or trying to get opportunities for them to go overseas. And that's when another phase of my work uh, <clears throat> started, which was looking for scholarships for students. So many of them went to TNUA, KNUA. Um, two have, one, one is still in Tish at the moment. So it's just, you know, sort of a, an expansion, uh, exponential explosion of dance activity, quite beyond what I expected but in a way what I prepared for as well. So the hats I wore involve all these different things, you know. It's very funny, in 1999, Dr. Anis says to me, okay, I've got a conference in America. I need somebody to write about contemporary dance. And you have to do it. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know the way he does it usually, right? So I said, okay, I have to do it, but I haven't written a paper before in my life. So he said, but there's nobody else. You are so... You know, you're positioned in, in exactly the place you should be, so this is what you must do. So I said, really, can't you find anybody else? You know, there weren't scholars of... I mean, I'm only like five years younger than Dr. Anis, but I guess there was nobody else like doing it at that time. So I was like, oh, goodness. Okay, I'll try. So I, I put... Uh, I wrote a piece of paper. Uh, a paper. <laughs> it feels like a piece of paper now. <laughs> and uh, presented it in Philadelphia, in 1999 that was the first paper I have ever presented and when I read it now it's just rubbish and I hate it with a passion <laughs> <clears throat> but it was necessary at that time this is what I needed to do and I did it again it's a cycle in my life you know it's a need and then I respond to it so I could also be the type of person that says I don't want to do it and I turn away and I walk in the opposite direction but I don't because I'm always thinking that whatever I do also has an impact on my students. And therefore, I force myself to do these things. And then I was teaching choreography at Aswara, with, together with um, the early days with Aida, Sohaimi, and so on. And then I realized that we don't have any material for choreography notes that are Malaysian. We just had books from the West. So I said, oh dear. So I started writing my own notes. And the notes were just lecture notes for one semester. That was all it was. But what was needed, again, was a little bit of history, a little bit of, you know, tools that they could use, and so on. And, and also maybe something about artists in Malaysia and so on. So in 2004, I said, oh my goodness, I think I have enough material for a book. So why don't I publish a book, you know? So I put all those notes together and fleshed it out a little bit more and did a better job of it and published my first book in 2004, which was called Choreography in Malaysian Perspective. And of course, now when I look back at it, it's just disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and that became part of my master's. Uh, and again, the master's journey was, okay, Aswara is moving in a direction of providing degrees, and at that time, I had just uh, diplomas in dance and a Bachelor of Science in Math. So I said, no, I think I need to sort of, you know, upskill. 
And the way to do it is by working towards a master's program. So I did my master's in University of Middlesex in England. And then I said, oh, this is very exciting. And then I spoke to Dr. Anis, but I said, I can't go away because of the work I was doing in Aswara. So I don't want to take leave. So I need to do a PhD while working. So he said, oh, you know, come to UM. So I continued immediately and started my PhD in 2007 and finished in 2010, which is like quite um, a little bit of a record for Dr. Anis, you know. So it's like... <laughs> You know, he pushes you, and I'm the type of person that likes to be pushed. So, and so again, another branch of the work that I did emerged, right? And in all this time, I started getting involved in World Dance Alliance. I started getting a little bit of a profile in Southeast Asia. Do you know, I mean, I invested a lot of my own money to attend festivals, to bring students to festivals, because I thought we had something to showcase that the government was not helping us showcase. And ironically, Aswara is a government institution, <laughs> but they just have kind of enough money to run the school. And they were not that interested in this kind of thing. So again, a need. We need to show people what we're doing. We need to show the results of the curriculum. We need to show the quality of the dancers. So I started investing in bringing the students and the dancers internationally. We went to all over the world, uh, in India, Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand, uh, sometimes for World Dance Alliance events and other times at other events. And all this cost so much money. Can you imagine, you know, I'm footing the bill basically for four people to travel or three people to travel. Sometimes I got a little bit of a grant uh, that helped but other times I didn't. And that's another big issue in Malaysia, isn't it? And this is 2018, and we still have no transparency. We have no clear systems for the disbursement of any kind of funding. Oh, goodness. So I thought, but I, I had to do it. And people think I'm crazy, you know, to have spent so much of my own money because I'm not a wealthy man. I don't come from an affluent family, but I'm willing to invest in all this, you know. So then began this, began this profile of Southeast Asia. People began to know who I was. And then in 2011, I was invited by Korea to be a part of the Asian Dance Committee. Uh, and together with Singaporeans and 16 countries. And that was in conjunction with the opening of the Guangzhou Art Center, the Asia Art Center in Guangzhou. And that comes with its own, you know, package of issues. Uh, Korea is not uh, immune to this kind of thing, you know. But we put together a committee to try to find work that would be suitable for the Guangzhou Arts Festival. But with their changing government, the roles also changed. But I've managed to stay on this committee until last year, so I'm still on the committee as the co-chairman, in fact. I think the reason I'm co-chairman is because I can speak English and I can speak Malay. Mm -hmm. So I can communicate with a few more people than the Koreans, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was very exciting. Uh, so my work has then included producing and connecting people at an Asian or an even beyond Asian level, you know. <clears throat> so in 2006, 2006, I attended a two-month program in UCLA for intercultural uh, performance and, and, and that also created a huge network for me to tap into.
So networking has sort of emerged very organically before the word was a buzzword, you know. So you kind of do it because you have to do it. You do it because you have to find spaces for your students to go to and yourself to go to. My own interest in performance has slowly taken a backseat. Um, you know, to be a performer, I need to go into class and I need to have my body in tip-top shape. And it's not. I'm spending most of my time behind a computer. But sometimes I really like to connect with the, the younger audiences and the younger scholars and the younger practitioners. And the things I can manage are things that are folk, like Minds Up In. I have done a few of that and I enjoy it tremendously. Did Run Die. I also do a couple of ballet performances and as a character role. So I play the father or the priest or the whoever they need. And it's fun because you get to know the younger audiences. You get to know the young people who are involved in dance. I think that's very exciting and something I really, really enjoy. So from commercial work, which I did in, uh, in the 80s, to the work that I do now, I... I think it's quite unusual to find somebody with that kind of breadth of experience and to keep connected with everybody as well, you know? So I think this is good and this is something that I have cherished. So those are the many, many hats that I wear. And then in 2011, I said, you know, I need a company for good dancers, right? And I'm not saying the other dancers who don't work in the company are not good. I think this was a very fine line that I had to tread. Um, as Dean of Dance for 16 years in Aswara, my responsibility is to every student. And so I've tried to encourage all kinds of interests. But at the same time, there, is a, there, there, there needed to be a space for me for young, to create for young artists who are interested in more contemporary work. Uh, i.e. artistic and with very little money. But you don't want them to give up their ideas and give up their dreams just because there's no money available in the arts. And so uh, in 2010, I started writing uh, you know, hundreds of letters to potential sponsors with an idea that they would sponsor a project and that would sustain the company. So we began our Connecting commu Communities project in 2011, and that has gone on till today. You know, the, uh, the company members have changed. I think there are a few who still are from the original company, like Lisa, Naim, Fauzi, Rizzi, uh, and Ruby. So these five are from the original company. Um, but the other members have changed. Uh, and it's not... Sometimes, quite honestly, there are reasons of uh, lack of suitability, changing directions. Uh, the, the, the graduate then doesn't feel that they want to do this anymore uh, because they've done it for three years and, okay, it's a good experience, but I don't want to do this anymore because I don't have stability. I don't have uh, a pension plan and I don't have... EPF or whatever. So we actually, I thought about those things and we have like EPF for the students, like Singapore CPF mm. for the dancers. And I think it's very important to try and build some stability. Now, while I want them to do all these artistic works, I don't want them to be impoverished artists. 
And I want them to be really proud of the decisions that they have made, that they have said, I have chosen to be this kind of artist. I am proud of the choice I've made. Yes, you may have gone in a different direction and good for you. I'm happy with the choice that you have made. So I think in a, in a environment and community that's shrinking, there is a greater fear for them to be feel more threatened, to feel more insecure because there is peer pressure. Uh, and I think that my role also is just be here and to give them moral support and say that, you know, this is a, a good journey that you're on. Because in 1980, I was very lucky because I belonged to a company of 10 dancers and everybody had the same dream. We all wanted to go overseas and dance overseas. That's all we wanted, you know. We wanted to be in a musical. We wanted to be in fame. We wanted to be in a ballet company. I wanted to be in Dance Theatre of Harlem or Alvin Ailey. You know, that was my dream. Never happened. But you have to have a dream, right? And it's great when people enforce that dream. People around you enforce that belief, you don't feel so isolated. Dance is already so isolated when you want to make it a profession. If you're quite happy to leave it as a hobby, it's great because thousands of people are doing it in nightclubs, in community clubs, in associations. But when you take that next step and say, I want to do this as a career, then it becomes very isolating and very lonely, you know? So I feel that my journey uh, involves nurturing, supporting, encouraging young artists. So I think that kind of covers most of the caps and hats I wear, you know. <laughs> now, I'm enjoying listening to, to, this, um, to your stories. Yeah. Um, and also the, the trajectory of how um, Aswara was first created. Yes. And, um, you know, and also acknowledging that uh, you... you you would want so much for your for your own students to to have a career, um, not to be impoverished artists, and I think that's also the reason why um, you know today, and in, in, if listeners are listening, you could hear to the soundscape of dancers chattering in the back, and also um, the traffic because I am actually in the office of ASK Dance Company that um, was just recently incorporated. Yes. Yes. So we actually, no, we, we registered the company in 2011. Okay. But we finally uh, decided that we have to have our own space. All right. And we just opened it on the 21st of July, mm. 2018. So it was a big step. A big step to take a challenge, uh, a risk even. But it's got to be done. I think we need our own space. You know, we're very grateful to the support that Aswara has given for six years in allowing us to use their studios, to use the transport, because we were mutually uh, selling each other, we were benefiting from each other, we were cross-pollinating, um, and that was very good. But Aswara itself is still growing, and they need the spaces for their students and their rehearsals, and we understand that completely. So uh, we decided that, you know, in the last year, it was time for us to go and look for our own space. And here we are. And, you know, if you talk to my dancers, they, they would tell you that I am the type of person that the moment that I have one thing, I want the next thing. So <laughs> there's never a stop, you know, and I joke with the kids and I say that, you know, I want a building now. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good dream to have. Yes. And, and, and you know, you, we all know um, what that might bring and, um, and you know, having more classes yes. and other art forms as well. Yes. Right? So, uh, it's a mini Azwara too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so I feel that uh, I like to be like a mini Alvin Ailey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yes, that's yes. kind of a vision that I have. Mm, mm. Or um, Cloudgate, because mm. they have their own space and they have a company, they have company too and so on. Mm. So I just see this as a great center for arts and performing arts and, you know, a little black box theater. So uh, I would like to, to work towards that uh, and possibly die trying. <laughs> I think I think um, I've I've been one I'm someone who has admired your work and also the work of your students as well. Um, I mean I don't I don't get to watch it in live, but I always see it on your Facebook pages yes. or on YouTube as well. So I've seen the sort of quality um, of dancers and choreographers that come out um, from uh, Aswara, um, and you know I just wanted to ask more about. You know, I think you were you the one that coined dancing the Malaysian. Yes, yes. and and it's also a slogan <clears throat> of this company as well. Yes, correct. And that's also the name of a book. Yes, my book. Yes, yes dancing, correct. Yes, your book, dancing the Malaysian. Yes. So if I can give you, and I understand the trajectory of Aswara um, as a national um, academy and also ASK Dance Company um, as bringing the Malaysian to the world. Yes. Uh, but in your perspective, if you could summarize, what is dancing the Malaysian? Yes, I think the beauty of our nation is its multiplicity. And I think that's what this company is all about. You know, we celebrate all cultures, we celebrate uh, the beauty of each ethnicity. So um, we, we want to bring that to everyone. And I think it sounds so cliched in many ways, you know, that people don't really, uh, people talk so much about, oh, we are a multiracial, multi-religious country and so on. But I think in, in this little company, in our little nucleus of arts that we have right here, we celebrate it to, in the truest sense, you know, so there's no fear. Uh, and I, I was able to work that way at Aswara as well. So... For example, the students would pray together and they would eat together. And, you know, one of the most beautiful moments was when one of my Chinese students' fathers passed away. Uh, and every single classmate of hers, Hindu, Muslim and Christian, said, we need to go to the funeral. And to see uh, Malay, Indian, Chinese boys and girls walk around the coffin and use the incense and place it where they're supposed to with utter and utmost respect was for me the the moment you know that I said you know I think I could die now <laughs> but I jest in fact you can't because while you create those things you need to work to keep it going it can so easily uh, fizzle out uh, so you talk about the beauty of the, the work that the Aswara dancers and the ASK dance company dancers have created we need to work so hard to maintain that standard. And that, I feel, in my you know, 30, 40 years of experience, is one of the first things that you can let slip if you don't pay attention. It's how do you keep all these balls in the air 
you know. And how do you, it's very tough for the dance company because they multitask, they manage, they market, they do the accounts, they do all kinds of things, but they have to rehearse and they have to do their classes. So in terms of technique, we do Bharatanatyam, we do ballet, we do contemporary dance, we do silat as our core techniques. So I don't think you can really find a company in the world that does that. And so this is the philosophy that I want to carry on, you know. Um, I feel that in terms of our Chinese dance uh, abilities, we are still a little bit fragile. And I want to work more closely with one or two of my Chinese uh, laoshers who are very good, but they don't, they're not based in Kuala Lumpur. So I need some time to bring them over here and work with the dancers. I think that's very critical. So um, bringing Malaysia's multiplicity, plurality, and celebrating its multiple ethnicities is what is Dancing the Malaysian about. Okay. Thank you. You're that welcome. Was, that was insightful. And I, 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 and thank you for that heartwarming story about um, your student and um, the funeral. Um, okay. Uh, I just wanted to ask as well about you and your experience in the region. And how would you say, where would you place Malaysia in comparison to many other Southeast Asian um, countries today um, in terms of the development of the arts and mm. dance? I think Malaysia is very fascinating because so much of the development happens because of the passion of the individual artists and their companies. Um, Malaysian artists suffer from lack of uh, corporate and government funding, but that really doesn't seem to stop them from doing everything that they want to do. Uh, I'm sure they will disagree and say they can do a lot more with the funding and I believe that's true. But uh, in dance, I think the shining examples are Dua Space Dance Theatre, Sutra Dance Theatre and ASK Dance Company as well. I think they would be the three leading companies. And then at the same time, there are lots of individual artists, you know, Liren Zin and Pei Ern and Suhaili Michelin and all these people who are trying to do whatever they can do, wherever they can do it, you know. So I think um, this organic development of arts and presentations um, and I think in terms of ideas in terms of technique we, we have it all what we don't have is that ability to sort of transcend the, the borders and I don't think Malaysians make that much of a commitment to international touring we don't seem to place that as one of the priorities I am just sort of talking off the top of my head as an observation so when the opportunity arises we get invitations, then we go. Otherwise, it's not something that is terribly, uh, you know, exactingly pursued, you know. Um, having said that, all these companies that I've mentioned travel a fair amount, maybe two or three times a year. Uh, Indonesia, I think, would probably be the most exciting regionally. Uh, and uh, the company that, uh, Ecosubrianto and Rianto, Two of them seem to have uh, a more global outreach and presence um, at big festivals in Germany, in France, and also in Australia, Japan. Whereas Malaysia is really not there yet. So I would put Indonesia at quite at the top of the heap. Now, Philippines, very interestingly, is so strong in ballet, and they've got many, many Filipinos in international ballet companies in New York, Stella Barker, just to name one or two. <clears throat> so they, 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 they're exporting that 
in terms of contemporary dance, I don't see enough of it happening on a global level. Although there's good work through their Wi-Fi Body Festival and so on. And of course, in Thailand, you have Pichit Kluchun, you know, so he does a fair amount of work, but his works seem a little bit smaller than the works of, of Echo. Uh, Singapore, I think, enjoys government support uh, more than any of the other ASEAN countries to a larger extent than any one of us. So you've got arts housing, you've got funding for scholarships, you've got, um, you know, seed funding for productions or whatever. <clears throat> All this we don't have here. So I think in terms of infrastructure, in terms of government support, Singapore is at the top of the heap. I'm not quite sure about the work that I'm seeing that comes from Singapore yet. So I think, unfortunately, Laos, Myanmar seem to be struggling a little bit. Laos now has uh, Sang Lao. Uh, so he's really happening and doing a lot of stuff. Vietnam has gorgeous dancers many of them Russian-trained. But again, we don't see them enough on a global sort of scale, on a global platform, because I think they usually go where the government takes them. So it's very government-supported companies. Oh, Cambodia. How can I miss Cambodia? Cambodia is phenomenal, as you know. You've got Amrita, you have Cambodia Living Arts, you've got a whole host of Cambodian artists who are reaping the benefit of maybe you could say sympathy or, or empathy to what happened in the killing fields and the death of so many artists that America, for example, are funding them quite extensively. So you have those, that kind of patronage that Cambodia enjoys and they have beautiful performers that are, you know, traveling the world. So Brunei, I think, is a non-entity in performing arts, mm. you know, so I think they have their own issues to deal with and maybe too comfortable too much money, so <laughs> I don't know, you know. So I think that would be the ASEAN region. I really think the ASEAN region is the region that the world should be looking at 